Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. Obviously we are looking for your support. We would love you to join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It is the link at the top of the podcast you're about to listen to. However, today's podcast is a special. Rory is running the Dublin Marathon for DePaul to raise funds for the homeless charity DePaul. And that link is in the bottom of the podcast. And it's your opportunity to chip in and help support the brilliant work that DePaul do and show Rory a little bit of love as he grinds his way around my beautiful city. So yes, I'd love you to join us, but more importantly, I want you to chip in and show some support for DePaul and our own Rory Hearn. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope. And I'm your host, Rory Hearn, and delighted to be joined on the podcast today by two guests who are working directly in frontline homelessness services. It is Neve Thornton, who is a senior services manager for Dublin, who's leading in service delivery around women and um, recovery, prison, and who has a background in social care, worked in Merchants Key for many years and is with DePaul for 10 years. And also by John Dermody, who also works in senior services in Dublin, uh, largely around community-based services and is particular around trauma-informed work and also worked in Merchants Key, but has been in DePaul for five years. And part of the reason why I'm doing the podcast today is I'm running the marathon on Sunday, uh, this Sunday, the 29th of October, raising funds for De- DePaul uh, and the amazing work to do- they do. And we're going to find out about some of that work now. So if you can um, donate, you can go over to, um, I'll give you the exact link, but it's Rory Hearn um, just giving. And it's four marathons. It will be the fourth marathon I've done this year, completing it at last and hopefully completing Dublin. But anyway, listen, Neve, John, it's great uh, to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much for having us. Uh, Neve, maybe to start with you, just to give listeners a sense of, um, I suppose, the homelessness crisis we are, you know, it's been with us many years. But in terms of what you're seeing on the ground um, in Dublin, what is happening around this scale? Maybe people who are coming to you, their experiences and that. So I suppose at the moment in Dublin, yeah, we're certainly seeing a real consistent level of people. Um, coming into our services. There's certainly no um, let up on what's happening on the ground. All of our services are consistently full. Um, and, you know, I guess pressure um, for beds, um, you know, we're, we're, we're always under pressure to, um, you know, keep our, our, our occupancy, occupancy rates high. Um, and there's always people um, waiting to use our services. And could you give us a sense of, of the people who are using your services and what sort of you know, experiences or, or, you know, leading them to present as homeless? Yeah, for sure. I was taking a look kind of at at, at some of the, the numbers today before we um, started chatting yeah. here. And, and certainly one of the things that I think we're seeing an increase in, um, certainly that I wouldn't have experienced maybe in the past, um, would be a lot more people coming with kind of a breakdown in kind of, say, shared accommodation or um, family breakdown. Traditionally, I suppose we would have thought of a lot of the people coming into our services were there due to maybe addiction or substance use or, um, you know, kind of those those sort of areas. But 
but certainly um, in in recent kind of times, we're seeing more and more co- people coming in because of family breakdown, relationship breakdown. Um, a number of people, obviously, um, who have noticed the termination or evictions, um, and kind of um, those sort of of reasons that they're coming into homelessness. And obviously, when people present as homeless that they must have gone through, we know, you know, have gone through a period of, you know, housing insecurity and, you know, probably in a state of, you know, anxiety and stress. And what, what, what is their kind of, how are they when they, when they present in that in themselves, I suppose, getting a sense of that impact on them of that whole process of housing insecurity and then, you know, breakdown and, and, you know, house loss. Yeah, I think people people come to us having, as you say, been through a period of of uncertainty. Maybe um, staying with family and friends for a while, or um, you know, and trying to keep their family together. Often, you know, we would work. Uh, we have some family services, um, women and children, and you know, maybe they have had to come into our services without their partner. Um, you know, so that in itself is 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 a pretty um challenging and difficult um time for people. So yeah, I think they come into us, you know, having having had a pretty stressful period of time trying to maybe maintain um where they're staying, um having to, you know, go and register as homeless and and all that negotiation with the uh, local authority trying to find somewhere to stay. Um, So, yeah, they they come in in a pretty, um, I suppose, anxious and and stressed state. And you work particularly with women. Um, What are the kind of specific experiences of women or particular experiences of women in homelessness? I think for women in in homelessness, some of the the real challenges that they face is is particularly around their 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 children. Um, you know, we worked um, last year with over a, a thousand yeah. women um, I- across all of our services, and I suppose we're on train for I guess probably to work with more this year. Um, but only about twenty. 20 to 25 percent of the women that we work with are actually in our specialized women's services and um, so often I guess for the women you know insured um, uh, accommodation services you know there's you know feelings of, of feeling unsafe um you know not having access to their children not you know not being able for their children to come and and visit them where they live um i remember reading one one mother saying that when she came into homelessness she felt um stripped of her yeah. motherhood um she was in a single accommodation um so she was classed as a single woman but she wasn't she was a she was a mother um and that's something that really kind of resonated with me and and um and as a mum you know myself I have a I have a, a a little boy who's eight and that really kind of um struck me um so we've started looking um really at the experiences of women in our services um at the moment and and what we need to do to sort of um improve them and 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 kind of make women um you know feel safer but also you know address particular needs that they might have yeah, that's a, you know, quite a profound statement, you know, being stripped of your motherhood. That's, you know, fundamental. And I know, you know, people in homelessness that I've talked to and, and worked with, you know, talk across the board, you know, regardless of man or woman, um, you know, there's a stripping of dignity, you know, a loss of dignity. But there is a particular deep rootedness of that motherhood because it's not just about you. It's the responsibility to your child and that sense of connection. 
and being stripped of that is pretty much fundamentally being stripped of yourself. Yeah, it's huge. And I think it's, you know, it, it it's, it's really important that all of us who, who, you know, work with um, women and, and, you know, with, with everybody and in homeless services are, are really hearing those kind of things and, and really thinking about what we can do better and how we can, you know, really um, face those challenges and, and make the experience of, of, of people in our services, you know, improved um, so that when they do move, hopefully out of homelessness and into their own home that, you know, they don't carry, um, you know, um, that we're not compounding the trauma, I guess. Um, yeah, I know we're going yeah. to talk about that. But. The, the number there, that's yeah. a phenomenal number. A thousand women that you worked with last year. One service. That's just DePaul. That, that's a huge number. And what, what proportion of... Yeah, so, that's sorry, across yeah, all of one. our services. Yeah, that's across all of our services. And so that would include the work that we do into the international protection um, services. I think there was like probably around four... A little over 400 were in our kind of um, accommodation-based services. Um, and of, of what proportion year. of those would have had children? Do you know? Um, yeah. I, do you know? I don't know. Um, we probably, like, we have two services for um, women with children um, where their children are are, are, are living with them. Um, but, you know, that's clearly not enough. I'd say a significant, you know, majority of of those uh, women that we work with have children, you know, in whether that's state care or in the care of family members or, you know, other other people in their lives. Um, so, yeah, the, I think we have um, maybe 30 beds, uh, you know, accommodation units for women and children. And it's just really. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And it was enough. something as well that uh, your CEO, David uh, Carl, and, you know, a lot of people have spoken about and have researched around is that issue of that impact of being in emergency accommodation on, on children in particular. And the fact that, the, I, I can't remember the figure off the top of my head, but there might have been, I think, 14 babies born into DePaul Homeless Services last year. You know, working there, what do you see as the impact on children of being in emergency accommodation? I mean, I think it's pretty, pretty stark and pretty profound i mean if you think about developmentally um you know young babies maybe in you know small rooms learning to walk in such a a, a, a situation um you know sharing a room with their family um you know children in education you know nowhere kind of to be able to do their homework properly or you know going off to school from um you know, a hotel room or a, a shared kind of hub, um, you know, the stigma, I suppose, attached to that potentially. Um, just socially, you know, nowhere to be able to bring your friends for a play date or, um, you know, having to travel great distances to go to school. Sometimes, you know, a child might be in school and then is, you know, gets a, a, a place in a family hub or, or some sort of accommodations across the other side of the city and, to trek across on buses and, you know, um, taking significant length of time to get to school and then again home in the afternoon and having to do your homework in a in a hotel room with your 
brothers and sisters crawling around your feet or or you know whatever like i i take my son off to to um hurling and to rugby every weekend and you know i kind of think god you know there are a lot of children in homelessness that probably aren't getting to experience this um at the moment purely because of the fact that they're you know in in homeless services so i think that the impact on 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 children is is going to be really significant and i don't think we have any real clue as to what that's going to be just yet um and i think we're in for a bit of an awakening a rude awakening when it you know when it finally starts um you know we finally start seeing yeah yeah i think john you want to come in there well i suppose yeah just the other thing that that strikes me about this is what is it like to try and parent yeah um in a situation where you know there's an awful lot of control that's been taken away from an awful lot of um you know, the supports that, you know, you would reasonably expect um, trying to parent a child are, are kind of not available to you. Um, you know, and for a child as well, it's like kids like constancy. Do you know what I mean? Kids like mm. routine. Um, and there's something about what am I learning about the world and my place in it when as a family we're being routinely uprooted um and again like i mean i know i've i've a, I have a two-year-old well he's going to be two in january um and i just you know i think about <clears throat> you know i'm I, I can get like you know hot and bothered by by the most routine stuff in the house yeah. and that yeah. that impact like it impacts on how i interact with my child yeah. do you know what i mean yeah. i may be less patient i may be less tolerant on a given morning because of just random routine stuff that's happening over the course of my day um and I'm in, I've, I, you know, I'm in my own home. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not in a hotel room. I'm not, I'm not sharing a space with a number of other people or I'm not trying to parent, you know, more than one child out of a single room. And, and the thing is, you know, and I was going to ask you specifically around that, John, was that, you know, you've kind of developed and worked around trauma informed, um, you know, services, trauma informed care. And, you know, there's, there's thankfully work been done about that. But if you kind of, go back maybe to the the basic of that question that I was asking Neve and, and homelessness, the experience of homelessness, that, you know, anxiety, stress of living in housing security, then losing your home and be that for an adult or a child um, is a trauma. And we need to understand it as that. Maybe you could just explain a little bit, you know, how is that trauma, you know, being in homelessness, not just being, but becoming homeless and being in homeless, homelessness. I mean, like if you think about a description of of an event that's experienced as traumatic, it it fundamentally comes down to people being overwhelmed and there being no control over over the incident. And whether that's like being in a car crash or whether it's, you know, losing your home or whether it's being, you know, the victim of of violence or or assault. Um, So we're talking about sort of a loss of control. We're talking about sort of um, our our capacity to cope being overwhelmed in some way. Yeah. and I guess what we now have is, you know, is, is a huge number of, of children finding themselves in, in that situation on a, on a, on a constant basis. Um, and obviously, you know, there's, there's a reckoning coming where, where we'll, we'll see what that impact has been on, on, on a generation in a sense. But obviously already, I mean, what you're, you know, what we're seeing is that, that children are struggling, that children who are not in their own home, 
um, are finding it harder to build those social networks. Yeah. Um, they're finding it harder, even on the basics of things like nutrition. And as Neve said, like, you know, being able to play reasonably. Um, but also there's a question here about, um, you know, as Neve pointed out, like stigma and what does it mean and what does it say about me? As a, as a person, because, as you know, as children, we're essentially just firing questions out constantly into the environment and whatever comes back, we're kind of internalizing at some level as being fundamentally about ourselves. Um, so, you know, you we have, I guess, you know, again, thousands of children who are kind of dealing with this and managing this and coping this, but also internalizing learning yeah. about themselves and the world. Yeah. Uh, uh, as a result of this, you know, and like for us as an organization, I suppose, like when we talk about trying to bring a trauma informed approach to the work that we do, I suppose it's quite important to remember that we're trying to do this in the context of a situation that is inherently traumatizing for people. Yeah. And with the knowledge that the responses that we have are, are, are not what they should be. They're not what we would want. Um, what we would want is a housing, like a fundamentally housing led approach that where somebody finds themselves without a home, we're resolving that as quickly as we can. And whether, you know, you're, you're somebody who's lost your home because you got a notice to quit and you're in college and you have a good solid family network around you. And really all you need is a house or a flat or an apartment. Um, then a housing led approach is for you. But also if you're somebody who left care 10 years ago, struggling badly with your mental health and, and there's substance use in there, the solution is still a house. It's still yeah. a home for you. It just may be that what we need is is a higher degree of 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 supports put in place for you. Um. So we we have to contend with that even as we're trying to to improve the service delivery that we have for the people that are using our emergency accommodation services. Um. And for me, like, you know, there's there's a lot of a lot of different positives to working in that way. Um. I mean, if you think about the idea that um, children struggle academically when they're in these situations because they're spending far too much time in fight or flight. Yeah. Um, in other words, they're in a state of constant low-level stress. And if I'm in a state of low-level stress or fight and flight, what that means, like at a physiological level, is my body is prepared for action. So, um, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of blood flowing around, you know, my limbs as opposed to my trunk. My uh, neocortex is kind of taking a backseat to to the more um, primitive kind of fight flight responses. So I'm not necessarily going to be learning at the same level. Um, I'm not going to be necessarily able to communicate my needs or hear what people are saying to me at the same rate that I would if I was, you know, in a nice calm space. Um, and as as kids kind of move into adolescence and into adulthood, if that's if that remains chronic, um then it's going to have sort of longer term impacts for, you know, for academic um, progression potentially. And this isn't like, it's not like to say that all of this is like, it's written in stone for people, yeah, but it does yeah. make it harder. Yeah, um, of course. And I guess like, so, so part of it for us is like in the services that we have, it's to, to do everything that we can to ensure that people feel safe Um that we are do we're finding ways to rebalance that kind of power dynamic because ultimately like we're service providers people come into our services um we'll have you know there'll be rights that people have there'll be responsibilities that people have and inevitably because we're in like um collective environments there's, there's going to have to be rules in place so that, that people can be safe within the services um but if i was just a, you know if i was coming into services like i'm going to kick against some of that because i'm used to having my own space and making my own rules to a certain degree 
And so part of it is like we're in a phase now where, you know, a lot of our staff, like most of our staff are trained to have an understanding of the impacts of trauma and what it might look like in our services. But we now need to to look at everything, our policies, how we induct people, how we, you know, show people to the services, how we consult with people. And very much about kind of um, challenging the stories that, that that trauma tends to teach us, which is that we don't have control, which is that our concerns won't be heard, which is that um, we're likely to be, you know, let down and crushed by systems and all of that kind of stuff. So um, I'm kind of rambling now. So I'm no, no, no. I, I think it's fascinating because it, it's so true in terms of that. Mm. Like there's so many different aspects to it. Um, and, and, you know, the one that strikes me, of course, is the longer people spend in emergency accommodation, then, of course, the more those aspects of, you know, that sense of lack of control, sense of lack of agency, you know, the reduction in agency, those issues around behavior, education, they're all going to worsen. So we're really in, you know, you talk about the issues that the difficulty is people go into emergency accommodation, they're stuck there for not just weeks, but months, and in some cases, years. And that is, that compounds, has to compound the trauma. 100%. Sorry, John, yeah, go on. Yeah, just before Neil comes in, I would just say, like, there's an awful lot more folks in our services who are traveling to work every day now, who are traveling to college. Um, You know, people in in services that we'd originally um, opened to support, you know, active injecting drug use. Um. Like that's, that's, you know, that's more generic these days, but like there are people in those services that were set up for that specific reason who were engaged in a master's program in, in, in universities in the city. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like just, that is, it's a fundamental shift. Yeah. In, in, yeah. You know. In terms of who is becoming homeless. Well, it's universal now. And I suppose the length, of, as you said, the length of time that people are spending as well. Like I remember, um, you know, late, late, like 2008, 2009, where somebody might come into a drop-in service and go, look, I've lost my place. If, you know, if, if they've got the capacity to to be supported to look for places and get to viewings and stuff like that, it'd be a matter of weeks. Yeah. You know what I mean? Whereas now, even with, with you know, with the best will in the world, as we know from the statistics, like the exits aren't there for people in the way that they were. Yeah, Neve, maybe do you want to come in just, is, is, have we become like just, has homelessness in Ireland become normalised? Like the scale of it now and, it, and you know, the length of time people are being, it's just like it's there and it's like people have accepted it. Like, where is the shock? Where is the, not just shock, but the anger? So, yeah, I think there's probably certainly a situation now where most people would know somebody um, that for various reasons has become homeless. Um, I mean, I'm working in this uh sector like 27 years and it's only in more recent kind of months and years that people in my wider circle um would have been impacted family or, or you know family and friends so i think there is certainly um i suppose a normalizing of it a, a, a bit um in that it is definitely more prevalent and, and kind of touching as john said it's more universal now um and it's 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 affecting um kind of all all all, all parts of society um and and i i suppose i i would have thought that maybe that made would have made more people angry yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean but i i suppose it has i think maybe people are just sort of feeling a bit jaded by it now and just kind of accepting and 
you know, I, I do think as a as a country, I've always felt, you know, that, that we haven't really tolerated it in the same way as you might see in, a, in other countries. Um, you know, certainly when it comes to maybe rough sleeping, um, you know, and that kind of visualize vi- visible homelessness in, in that way. But maybe in recent times we are becoming uh, more desensitized to it, I think, you know, um, which is is which is worrying because I suppose then, you know, we need that anger um and we need we need people to be um you know making noise about it um you know i suppose to affect any change well, what's your view on that john has have we just normalized homelessness in ireland this level this experience of it or yeah it, it, like it i mean it's it's so prevalent and to such a worrying degree and i suppose it's it's also kind of become like a bigger issue regionally as well and mm. um, in, in, in a way that, that I don't think I mean you'll always have homelessness pretty much everywhere for 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 various reasons but I, I there isn't really there just isn't a precedent for this there isn't a precedent for the amount of of, of visible homelessness of rough sleeping and stuff or even I think for the amount of insecurity across the city as well yeah I mean the idea of um, like having to go and, and look for a private rented place in the current uh, scenario makes my heart quail. Do you know what I mean? I couldn't. Yeah. Um, and and you know, but as as Neve said, like there's so many people that we know who are who are couch surfing or who are in fact you know staying in services at this point. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's it's it is an issue definitely that the like the whole question of housing first, you know, and the the key you know solution as you mentioned earlier there is getting people homes first that. We seem to have gone into this, well, not we seem, we have over the last kind of six years is, or to eight years even now or, well, nine years since 2014, since the kind of real increase in homelessness um, has been this emergency accommodation response rather than a housing first response. And there's a very limited housing first response. Um, do you think that that's part of the issue that that somehow being in emergency accommodation is seen as addressing the issue? Maybe Neve, you want to come in on that? Yeah, I, 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 I think it is seen as a solution, um, and one that you know a, a short term solution, but maybe that's um, you know that'll keep kind of I think that I suppose keep a lid on things for a little while, and we can mm. kind of cover over some cracks if if we do that, um. You know, and obviously, look, there is always going to be a, a need for some measure of emergency accommodation, you know, for those kind of somebody finds themselves in homelessness, you know, somewhere to, to take people in to accommodate them in the short term, which is, you know, what what they were. It was always supposed to be about. But now that we have a, a you know, a, a private rented sector that's collapsing or collapsed, um, you know, and, a you know, social housing not being built at the, the rate that we need it to um the temporary accommodation becomes becomes the only solution um and then you know your traditional temporary accommodation isn't doesn't have the availability so we move into private emergency accommodation and people are then in hotels or you know it's it, you know I, I i'm not sure how we're going to kind of move beyond that without you know a real increase in investment in in social housing and, and housing stock 
um, because, and I know David talks a lot about um, the kind of communities and, and, and the importance yeah. of, and, you know, we've talked there about the trauma stuff and, and how in our services, you know, it's really important to us to try and create, you know, a safe space, a community for people, but that should only ever be in the short term. Um, you know, and, and 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 really, people need to be living in their own home. They need to be like building their own communities, um, outside of of homeless services. Yeah, John, do you want to come in on that or? Yeah, I mean, like, like Neve talked just a little while ago about that. That's sort of the need for for a degree of anger because you know. The big fix here is a long-term one, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like, we simply need to build more and more sort of housing for people. Um, Along with a short-term uh, reinstatement of the eviction ban would help. Well, there's this, and then I suppose there's also just any of those kind of other measures that will that will relieve, you know, the, the level of strain. Mm. Um, and whether that's about vacant properties nationally, um, you know, because... Like the uh, the idea that we've uh, sort of somehow facilitated the, the, the scenario that we're in, like there's got to be a piece of learning that comes out of this. Um, that 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 makes it an absolute, like you know, that would make you politically, uh, you know, a, a pariah to allow something like this to happen again. Like that level of dereliction of um, of the social housing stuff. Um, sorry, now I'm getting a little there. <laughs> no, no, no. I think, I think, in terms of the point, you know, that we can't allow this to happen again. We have to solve where we're in, and clearly, at the heart of it is, as you both said, you know, the the, the essential cessation, as I've described it, like the nails in the coffin that were driven into social housing during, you know, that started back in the 1980s you know, that undermining of social housing. And then from 2009 till 2016, they built no social housing. Nothing was built. And, you know, we're dealing with that last decade of social housing and and while need has been increasing. um, And for me, it is fundamentally about, you know, changing policy, but it is also, I think, ultimately about the right to housing as well and putting that into constitution that would, you know, fundamentally set us on a new path. Have you, I don't know if you have a view on that. Um. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, you, you mentioned there about the eviction ban and, and the possibility of, you know, or the, you know, the benefit of, of another one. But that it's only going to be of benefit if we learn from it yeah. and actually do something while it's in place. Um, you know, because all, otherwise all we're doing is kicking a can down the road. And at the end of the ban, then we have a, another influx in um, but yes, yeah, certainly on the the right to housing, um, you know, DePaul would 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 feel that you know everybody should have a place to call home, and that you know that housing led approach and that kind of belief that you know everybody has has that right. I think is fundamental to what we do um, and the way that the way that we work. Um, so even within our on our accommodation services, we would try to to take that approach. And it's really hard because, you know, when you're working with people that are, you know, trying to move out of homelessness and they're coming from homeless services and they're going to a viewing um, wh- when they can get a viewing. I mean, we have we have a place finders, a place finder in one of our services yeah. who 
um, you know, whose sole sole job is to make contact with landlords and letting agents agents where you know um, there's there's apartments or houses for rent. And, you know, they're getting viewings in single figures, you know, um, for hundreds of landlords that they're that they're contacting. And then, you know, people that we work with are going along and they're up against, you know, people in two wages coming into the house and savings in the bank and, you know, offerings of, you know, months rent up front and um, being able to give proof of, of funds in the bank. And, you know, so they're, they're really coming in at, at a real disadvantage into that. Um, so, you know, the private rented section uh, sector is really just, you know, really not an option for a lot of the people that we work with. Um, so often I think there's a sense then of what's even the point yeah. in trying that. And I think, you know, it can be really, really hard to kind of break that and you can understand why people feel that. Well, why would I, why would I put myself through going to a viewing and standing in a queue and, and getting turned away or even staff members? Why would I push somebody to go for a viewing and encourage them and support them, you know, when the, when the chances are? So, yeah, I mean, it's, I think that it's, it's really hard to, you know, marry those things. Yes, everybody has a right to a home, but then at the same time, we're in this situation where, you know, people just cannot access them. Um, I guess it's, it's yeah. Well, the, the part of the problem is we don't actually have a right to a home at the no, moment. No, <laughs> that, no, that, 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 that is yes, that's, that's the problem. <laughs> and and this just to ask you to finish in terms of to Paula, you know, and the services that you're providing. Maybe you could give us kind of some examples. As kind of two things I'm thinking. One is like, you know, the 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 things that you're doing that you see. Okay, this makes a difference. Like. Maybe you give some examples of that in your daily services that, you know, you go, okay, I, you know, I see there what makes a difference. And then the other question I had was like, how do you keep people, you know, both the the people who are in homelessness, you know, supported and how do you, you know, then your own staff and yourselves, how do you keep motivated, positive, you know, within such a, you know, level of, of trauma? Maybe Neve, do you want to, or John, you want to go first? Uh, sure. Um, I suppose, like, you know, we have a vast range of different kinds of services, do you know what mm. I mean? So I'm just trying to think of, so like one of the, one of the community-based services, um, we'd, we'd have a, a, um, a, a tenancy sustainment worker mm. uh, working out in, in the sort of the north side of the city. Um, and it, and his, his role is, is simply to support people to maintain themselves in their current tenancy. So people who might be uh, in arrears or people who might be um, potentially facing down um, uh, notices to quit and stuff like yeah. that. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's one person, it's a very small amount of funding that's, that, that's going towards this role and, and this resource, but he's like having sort of huge successes in, in the prevention of people, you know, sort of falling into um homelessness uh, in in that sort of northern part of the city of Brown Valley Moon and stuff like that and I've I've sort of seen testimonials from some of the people he's worked with and it it like it would be like truly heartwarming stuff like people are um just singing the man's praises and talking about how how they've been supported to to you know to avoid falling into this but also even just the regards and the sort of collaborative approach to the work yeah. um and I suppose like the other one that immediately springs to mind I mean we have staff working in all of our services, working incredibly hard with with people with highly complex needs, and 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 so having to go above and beyond into kind of provide provision of like personal care for people, 
um, who've made a decision that they want to be with us in a particular service and won't countenance a move elsewhere. Um, but I suppose we have a service in, on James's Street um, called Sunday House, which works specifically, I suppose, with and was designed to work with with people who were, you know, drinking chronically and perhaps unlikely to change that behaviour. Mm. So part of it is to support people to 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 um, have a roof over their heads, working with staff who are specifically trained to uh, to work with that and help them to kind of reduce the impact of their alcohol use. And what we're finding is, um, by and large, that that people are living longer. Um, so so people in that service are being supported to live far longer and then to potentially, um, you know, move on to appropriate um, long-term care, such as nursing homes, um, which is, you know, flying in the face of, I suppose, the the expected life expectancy of, of people in homelessness, which is shockingly low. It's in the, it's in the low 40s, do you know what I mean? Um, and how has that been achieved? Like, that's incredible. Uh, well, it's I mean, there's it's a combination of things. Like, there's really good collaboration so between ourselves and and the inclusion health team at St James's Hospital. Yeah, yeah. And um, we'd have our own sort of nursing and healthcare staff on site. Um, really enthusiastic staff team, and a, I mean, a fundamentally, I suppose, a harm reduction approach um, to both managing, I suppose, some of the more maybe you know challenging behaviours that people might exhibit. And again, this this goes back to a trauma informed approach. Like, a, a lot of the time that the behaviours that we might see in in homelessness um, that we would describe as as challenging are often like people's adaptations to very very difficult situations. Yeah, um, and and yeah. I suppose the trauma informed care training sort of helps staff to to think about that first before responding immediately to a to a behaviour. Um, so it's it's all of that. Like it's 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 trying to ensure first and foremost that people have a roof over their heads, meeting the health needs that they have, supporting them to reduce um, the harm associated with the, with the alcohol. Um, and all of those things together, I suppose, along with a kind of a collaborative and, and dignity-focused approach, um, just means that people retain their beds, people engage more with health interventions. Um, and, 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 and I suppose the upshot of that is that people survive. That's incredible, incredible. It, it is so important to hear those stories and that experience as well of the positive work that, that is being done and the incredible work that is being done. Um, and I'm always, you know, struck, you know, by the numbers that are experiencing homelessness and the work. There's actually, you know, a huge amount of prevention going on, as you said, and support for people. And, and if, you know, that wider housing crisis wasn't there. Like if these resources were being put into, you know, those people who were in, you know, uh, suffering, you know, chronic addictions over time and inequalities and, and you could do so much more. And we could have a housing first situation like Finland where no one was in emergency accommodation. You were literally supporting people to get a home straight away. And, and, and you know, hopefully we will someday get to there. Um, Neve, just that in terms of, yeah, some positive kind of examples of, you know, that work that's being done. I think I think a lot of what John, fundamental to a lot of what John was talking about there is the relationships. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, John spoke about our incredible staff. And, and I mean, they really are. And that the relationships and, and that they build up that the, with the people that we work with is, is, you know, really, I think, what contributes so much to the, the positive outcomes that we have. And, you know, we've some really lovely um, kind of programs happening uh, around the place that are, are just those kind of extra kind of, you know, things that that bring so much to people's lives. Like one of the things um, 
that I talk about a lot in, in one of our services in Backlane. Um, the mental health support worker there does this program called um, Walking to Wellness, which is really just they just go out into the up the mountains and out into nature. And, yeah. you know, it's just, you know, being in a in a in a quiet and a, and a calm place and, and, you know, out of the city and um, just spending time together Um and I, yeah, I just don't think we can underestimate the impact that our staff have, you know, on on the people in our in our services. Um, you know, John spoke about the, the you know the health um, and the chronic kind of health conditions that some of the people that we work with, and you know, we have we have people in our services that um, choose for various reasons, you know, as they approach their end of life, you know, to, to die at home, which is 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 a homeless service, and on the face of it, you'd be like you know, um, why would anybody want to, you know, die in a homeless service? But it's like, that's their home and the staff have created that space yeah. for that person. And, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty phenomenal, um, you know, what, what they do, um, on a daily basis. So, you know, it, it's really, really inspirational. Um, and one of the things we've done recently and we're, we're really working more and more on, and that is, you know, getting the voice and, and the consultation and, and hearing from, you know, hearing the experiences of, of the people that we work with. Um, and, you know, we did uh, we did a parallel Citizens Assembly um, and made a submission um, to the Citizens Assembly um, on drug use. Yeah. Um, we've had, we recently kind of convened a women's group, a focus group, you know, to kind of hear the experiences of women in homelessness. Um, you know, so we're just doing, we're, we're doing. And why do you think that's important? That voice? Um, because, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, it's, you know, we're here to serve the people that we work with and you know we, we we can't do that unless we know you know what it is that that you know what supports they need um you know who knows better about how to run a homeless service than a homeless person you know and it's about us working together with them on that and and kind of hearing those experiences and you know i, I mentioned earlier about you know the woman who spoke about um being feeling stripped of our motherhood and it got me thinking you know how do we facilitate women to have access to their children you know if they're in our services have we a space where children can come and visit you know um their parents in services you know and a lot of the times we don't so how can we how can we change that what can we do so it's just really really important because i think it it completely you know changes how people experience our service um if we're you know hearing from them Absolutely. Yeah. No, no, it's so, so important. Um, and just, of course, uh, in terms of um, your own, the workers, I'm sure many of them are, um, if not all, uh, part of the the staff involved in the um, uh, demand, rightful demand to be paid equally to uh, the HSC staff around Section 39, Section 10 and 56, um, which is fundamental if you're doing, you know, the, the work, the same work, you should be paid the same Um and just, you know, I, I think that's, you know, again, recognition of and part of the issue with the state and how we, you know, look at these whole, all these services and charity services, you know, if we don't value them equally, then, you know, it just says everything about your priorities as well. Um, but listen, Neve John, it was really interesting and, and I'm really glad that uh, you took the time, even though you were both lumped in it and didn't necessarily want to do it. But uh, it was very interesting and uh, engaging. And listen, thank you so much for all the work that you do. Thank you so Thanks much. Uh, and it wasn't that we didn't want it. We're just nervous <laughs> interviewees is all. Um, 
I'm looking. No, at I you. shouldn't have said that. I was putting words in your mouth. There. That's not fair. <laughs> no, no, in fairness, I was out straight enough with that. Right? Um, but no, no, it's been a, a genuine pleasure. And um, I suppose just to, just to uh, say thanks again in terms of four marathons in a year is uh, is no small undertaking, um, and it's greatly appreciated. Just bringing, I suppose, the spotlight onto the work that we're trying to do, and and I suppose more broadly, I suppose your work in just maintaining um, a conversation around uh, around this issue. Uh, nationally um. thank you and and uh, yes the least least i can do but uh i will see i, I won't be uh, as happy and bouncy when i'm finishing the the marathon <laughs> <laughs> i'll be i'll be out on the route i'll keep an eye out for you i'll be at a uh probably at uh, DID Electrical on Crumlin is usually where I watch. So I'll oh, very good. You. That's a tough spot when you're getting around to I think probably mile 15 at that point. <laughs> Hopefully uh, I'll be still going strong and not really suffering as it was last year at that we'll point. Ha- I'll have a placard. <laughs> is, is that around the point where you start to question why it is that you decided to do this or is that a little bit later on? You don't actually question why you did it. You just feel really, really crap. And you're just going, I just want this to be over. I just want this to be over. And uh, you start thinking of stories like that. There wasn't the one fella who uh, took the Lewis um, last year or something like that, halfway through it. Um, That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you kind of just, you, you don't want to see any buses with doors open or Lewis's <laughs> with that happen to stop nearby. That's kind of it, you know. There's an old Tommy Tiernan joke about a fella starting the marathon and then hopping into a ditch about two miles in kind of thing. Oh, and that's, that was the end of him, just leapt into a ditch. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I can understand that. Listen, Neve, John, thanks a million and thanks Thank a million you. to DePaul um, for all the work they do. I said you can go over to Giving forward slash Rory Hearn uh, for marathons and donate if you can. And um, I'm sure as well DePaul are always interested in getting volunteers in support as well and then if you want to go check out DePaul uh, and the work they do listen thank you so much for taking the time and best of luck with the work and I'm sure we'll be talking again thank you and listeners as always we are a podcast that is based on uh, independent we are independent media we're based on the work being done by Tony Groves who produces um, Reboot Republic and the Echo Chamber podcast and if you can please become a patron go over to patreon.com forward slash tortoise track help us keep this show on the road and thank you so much for your comments and for listening um, we had a lot of comments feedback on our uh, interview with um, a number of people recently around the the housing crisis also a Palestinian podcast and we'll be having more of those as well um, covering it and yeah thank you so much for your feedback and lots of messages and keep them coming and please if you can share the podcast around I really appreciate that thank you so much and we will talk to you all very very soon again